this is this is the book reviews are in their own universe. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for February 8th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Johnny Fairplay. The only thing I promise is that I won't play fair. Hmm. Seems like a misdirection. Um, Johnny Fairplay. What are are we doing here? (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about uh, today one specific book. Uh, very good book. But in general, what we're going to do is bring uh, some adequately informed discourse to the topic. We're going to evaluate ideas in the light of facts, make sure to consider opinions from whatever direction they come from, any corner, and evaluate them in good faith. Keep our discussion in good faith, hopefully doing our best through our conversation to keep ourselves and our loyal listeners adequately informed. You know, maybe not even to like get you adequately informed but we like to think we're adequately informed enough to talk about the things that we do i guess there's dual meaning but Look, um, it's, it's a name of multitudes <laughs> you know it's like fox.com you know it's like is it a news site or a far-right party in spain you know you just never know um but we are only human we don't know everything we don't come from the ivory tower, you know, that wasn't a place on our block, you know, we don't, we can't go there. We're not from there and we're not looking down on everybody from there, but how glorious it would be if that did exist. And if you could be that, One but no, 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 no. We can't even have ideation of the ivory tower. Um, so Evan alluded to it, but we are going to discuss the blockbuster of a book, um, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. Um, I have been looking forward to discussing this book for some time, and uh, Evan finally read it. Not like, geez, why do I always like end up phrasing things like that? <laughs> finally, but this anyway. piece of shit read a fucking book. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> way too harsh on what I want to say. Um, or I guess as a new take, we have both finally finished reading it. Uh, <laughs> so, so and, here's how I'll phrase it. I finally decided to read a fucking book. Hey, <laughs> he could say it. Um, yeah, this, this book, like I, Evan, I, I know you shared this with me while you were reading it, but it would make me irate sometimes while reading it absolutely like the the information in this is so damning to the like to the general idea that we're like past racism or that things you know we live in a society that is unburdened by the racism of yesteryear this book just 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 absolutely destroys that. Yeah. Like the book is basically a rebuttal. Um do you remember to which Supreme Court justice it was? Roberts or Alito? I think it was Roberts. I feel like responding to Alito is like whoop de do. Like <laughs> like everybody responds to Alito. 
I've got I've got the book here. I can pull it up. It's right in the beginning. Um, I feel like it was Roberts because Roberts is someone to like contend with, and he probably wrote the opinion. But regardless, it was either Alito or Roberts who uh, said in a Supreme Court decision that the um, that housing segregation in the United States was a mere happenstance of racism of individuals in the past, um, individual private parties, and not the express policy of government. So, you know, there wasn't remedy to be had in the court system for, uh, you know, differences in housing. Um, and I confirmed it was Roberts, by the way. Roberts sounds right. And this book is just a thorough look at how uh, African Americans have been discriminated in housing for basically over the course of the whole 20th century and just how deep and how at every layer that there was explicit racial decisions made at the local state and federal government level to uh, make housing affordability and availability just worse for black people. Yes. Mm. Yes. Um, (laughs) at, At every stage in the game, integrated housing projects were discouraged through official governmental policy and the only housing projects that could really get off the ground for the vast swath of the 20th century were segregated by law so we'll dive into all the ways that that happened yeah so um i i mean this may end up being a very chapter focus because I just have a list of the chapters shown up here. But what what one of the big revelations that I found was crazy was we think of zoning as like, I don't know, just an act of governance. Um, that That's something you do is that you, um, you know, that's just something you do is zone different pieces of land for different uses, which is true in some respect. But the nature of how zoning came about in the United States was very racialized, um, to say the least. Um, yeah, this was an especially eye-opening part for me because I, you know, I, I kind of feel like, oh, you know, yeah, communities, they just want to have a say in how their communities are planned and what space is used for, and it's totally reasonable. But that mindset really only makes sense if you assume that zoning laws and the concept of zoning is innate to the way that Americans have practiced local governance, and it's not at all. Zoning only arose after the courts struck down certain measures of explicit racial segregation in housing plans. And so zoning became a way, it was explicitly created as a way to backdoor certain racially discriminatory policies as law. So for example, the biggest thing is single family zoning. In about the 1940s, or maybe even a little bit earlier, 
city planners realized that most people who could afford to live in single-family homes and who chose to were white. And so if you zone for a, a space for single-family homes, you prevent any future development of multi-unit dwellings and due to the economic conditions that are associated with this, you essentially prevent most black people from being able to afford to move into a white neighborhood. The zone was not anything that was inherent to the community or to the world, but once you create a single family zoning ordinance, you basically ensure that the racial makeup of that community cannot be changed. Right. It like to even back out even further. So like through a good portion of American history, there just wasn't zoning. Like this idea of zoning just really didn't exist. It was generally believed that if you owned a piece of land that you could build whatever you wanted on it. And you can see it in older cities where, you know, buildings are really packed together um, or you'll see blocks of lots of small buildings put together. You know, there were a lot fewer restrictions on what you could do with your land if you held it. And, you know, zoning came along as this tool, you know, because there are some greater uh, goals that can be, um, you know, desired or achieved with zoning. I mean, really the big one that I think of is, yes, a lot of times you do want to separate your industrial areas that create pollution from the areas where people live. Like, at, at its core level, I think that's like the best that zoning has to offer. I mean, there will be a lot of other things, but that's all just kind of window dressing. So it used to be that, you know, you if you could have small pieces of land and decide whatever you wanted to do with them. Then it became in the, like Evan said, in the earliest 20th century, um, planners wanted to be able to explicitly say, White people live over here and black people live over there. And the courts threw that down. So then they were like, well, what tracks with white people and black people? Well, a lot of white people are able to afford single family homes. So we're going to see, we're going to zone big portions of cities as only being able to have single family homes built on them. And because of that, we won't, you know, we're we're essentially segregating the races without ever having black or white be in the codes. Yeah, absolutely. It's a way uh, that that's kind of how some of these subtly racist things emerge is that people who were invested in racial segregation and invested in the subjugation of black people would find strong correlates with uh, people being black. So, you know, often this would have the added side effect of hurting poor whites as well, but it was more about ensuring that black people would never be able to achieve racial integration, even if they would otherwise be able to afford it. Right. Well, and it's also like just you know, the explorations of how this ended up working out, like at the advent of zoning, you know, when you learn how to, when you start zoning, 
Um, the, there's a lot of things that you can also decide. So like a lot of people will often point to, oh, well, on the good side of town, you know, there aren't a whole bunch of liquor stores or, you know, uh, brothels or, um, you know, whatever, uh, or bars or, you know, whatever, uh, sin, you know, uh, receptacles or, <laughs> uh, sin receptacles. I like sin, it. Sin designated locations, um, on the good parts of town, but over in the bad part of town where all the black people are, they're everywhere. That must mean that they just want it so much more. Well, it turned out that that it was just a matter of zoning. Like mm-hmm. the town planners in a lot of towns were like, well, on the north, yeah, I, I was about to say the north side of town because that's what it kind of is in Galesburg. But, you know, in the good part of town, the quote good, meaning white part of town, we're going to make sure that everything's, you know, clean and tidy and all this stuff. You know, even though the people may ha- still have the same desires for whatever those things are, um, we're just not going to have them. But on the bad side of town where the black people live, just going to make sure that, you know, or not going to do anything to stop it from happening. You know, if, if this town's going to have liquor stores, it may as well be on the side of town where all the black people live. Exactly. Um, Zoning is really used not only to segregate areas, but also to make certain areas less hospitable than others. So for example, in a lot of towns, Local zoning ordinances would stipulate that areas could be zoned for industrial as well as multifamily dwellings, but industrial projects could not be permissible within single family areas, assuring that all of the pollution would be dumped into black and poor communities, which is uh, sometimes called environmental racism or another aspect of it is that zoning variances can be granted typically uh, based on the race of the person who's applying for it. So let's say that you have residential areas zoned for no commercial use, but you want to be able to contain where all of the liquor stores are and all of the quote unquote, let's just call them sin receptacles. I'm, I'm digging that term. <laughs> um, where all the sin receptacles go. And so if someone wants to put up a liquor store in an area that's not zoned for it in a heavily black populated area, city planners could just grant them a zoning variance to make sure that they are able to put that there in a way that they likely would not do within a white community. And another thing that I want to hit on here is that zoning started in a few different communities. And so it was really just uh, a couple of places that wanted to innovate in the ways that they would enforce racial segregation. But when the U.S. federal government found out that this was going on, the Federal Housing Authority, instead of putting a stop to it, created a handbook for ways to create effective zoning codes and distributed them across the country. And that's what made zoning as a practice spread to the point where it's ubiquitous. Now, the federal government actively encouraged every city in the country to adopt the same racially coded zoning ordinances. Yeah. So let's yeah, so I was, I was, that was going to be my next point was how, you know, there were cities, you know, 
how does the federal government get involved with something so local? Because zoning, at least in the United States, is done at the local level. Um, I, I would greatly contend that it should be really done at like the state level, but you know, whatever. Um, this is that's a different conversation for a different day. Um, but it it really took on a different character when um, you know the GI Bill came. And this was one of the biggest, you know, people talk about the GI Bill all the time. It was post-World War II. Um, it gave, you know, uh, notably it gave, helped uh, pay for educations for soldiers of World War II and then also um, helped give them housing. So, like, getting into the how it gave them housing is a very unique story because it's like, the the federal government had wanted to help spur the growth of communities in you know to spur development of new communities to be built in order to house all these uh the patriots or you know soldiers who came back from world war 2 they were all grown up they wanted houses and there was a real belief in the United States in the time, in the true power and the ideation of having a single-family home versus renting. Um, so they wanted to promote the growth of housing projects, or not housing, you know, public housing projects, but housing developments. And what they wanted to, instead of a direct government provision, what they ended up doing was creating this program through the Federal Housing Administration where the federal government would insure loans for people instead of just giving them a loan generally. So a bank would give them a loan and the government, the federal government would insure that loan for them so that, you know, even if the person ended up being bad on their payments, that they would um, still pay it out. Yeah. But the FHA insurance is absolutely critical because Banks are very risk averse, right? So they're really on their own devices, only going to lend to the utmost qualified borrowers, typically people who can afford huge down payments. Now, we know that many people are able to afford to make housing payments, even if they don't have the cash up front for a large housing payment. So this is where the FHA steps in and says, that's okay, you know, we'll vouch for these people, we'll give the banks the added layer of security, but really most people who the FHA would insure are going to be able to make their payments. However, in the absence of an FHA guarantee, the banks, who again are very risk averse, are unlikely to take on that risk of issuing a mortgage. So who the FHA decides to give a mortgage to and what types of loans they will insure become a huge leveraging tool in who gets to have housing essentially. Yeah. And, and I'll even, you know, a caveat before we move to the next step, which is, you know, housing, but getting a loan for a house was different back then, you know, before the FHA really came in with, or, you know, I think it was somewhere in the, maybe the Hoover administration. I forget what he ended up saying, but the way housing loans, or I guess the way housing loans are now is that you put up a percentage of the price as a down payment. Um, people typically say 20%, but 
you know, that it, it differs. You can do as little as three and a half percent. And then from there, you get a loan for the bank for the rest of the money. And then you have a payment where you, where you, um, each payment pays off part of the interest, but then also critically pays off part of the principal, which is the amount you owe. So, yeah, this is called an amortized payment, yeah. amortized mortgage. I didn't know what yeah. that term meant before this book. Yes, and that is a very crucial part of it. So what the, the crucial part of it is that as you're paying your loan, you're also owning more of the house. And it's expected that at the end of your loan term that you will own your house outright. Before that, the way home loans would work, if you got a home loan, was you would have to put up a massive down payment, like somewhere in the range of about 50%. And then if you got a loan from the bank, the loan would be for a shorter term. So instead of something like 30 years, it'd be for a term of like maybe five years. And then there was not this amortization where you would be paying off the principal as well as paying off the interest, your payment would just be paying off the interest. And it would be, you know, since it was only for a five-year term, the, you know, the amount you paid was way jacked up compared to what you would get on a loan these days. So what you would end up happening is that you would, you know, have this loan on your house for a sizable amount, that was a really high payment. And it if you, you know, if you didn't make any additional payments for the, you know, the principle of it to, you know, to get parts of, you know, ownership of your house, you would just have to take out another loan after the end of that five years to keep owning your house and just paying these ridiculous high amounts on you know just to have your house so getting a house loan was a very tough thing to do and even then the terms were not great so it was really only worth it for people to buy house once they had saved enough money which is a tough thing to do so so we have so so the FHA comes through and essentially creates this new financial product, the 30-year fixed rate amortizing loan, where if you put down a down payment and pay it off, you know, make the same payment every month at the end of it, you'll own your house. That was an innovation. And... So they would insure these loans from these banks who really otherwise didn't want to give out these loans because they were seen as risky. And, you know, now now banks just, you know, <laughs> they almost just throw them out. You know, they, they, they're trying to get anyone to get a home loan because, you know, they they now know that they're pretty low risk and quite profitable. But um. What the FHA came along and did was like, okay, so for the GI Bill, essentially, we are going to insure 
a whole lot of loans for uh, the soldiers coming back or just in general. And but we're going to have some terms on why we do that um, on which products or projects that we will end up insuring loans for for development like this is like way before even you know the individual buyers are involved you know the fha would put up and you know and say that they would insure loans for an area and what was the big criteria that you know we're talking about that they wanted to make sure was that the housing project or the housing development could reasonably be insured that or reasonably assure that it was only going to be white people living there. That was what it was. Or at very minimum that it would be segregated. There were different projects built for black people in which to live. They were fewer in number and lower in quality, uh, but they had to be kept away from the white projects. Right. I guess from the FHA's, standpoint yeah they just wanted to make sure that it was segregated um now when we'll probably later we'll talk about how things got you know more um granular and harder for other projects but the thrust of the story is that the federal government gave out loans for people to buy houses but had a vested interest in making sure that they were segregated um, that, you know, all these neighborhoods that a, a, a lot of white people ended up moving into were exclusively from the beginning meant so that black people would not live there from the highest level of the government that, that, that's just mind blowing. That, yeah. And this was not, this is not Rothstein or even us editorializing. It was brought up in discussions with the people who were crafting FHA policy. It was done in written manuals saying that one of the explicit goals was to avoid race mixing, you know, whether this was good faith, like, oh, segregation will will keep us all from getting at each other's throats or, you know, just the keep the, the black people away from us type of overt racism. The discrimination was intentional. That is what they were trying to do. They admitted so themselves at the time. Right. Like, so one of the most famous housing developments to come out of that era was this project called Levittown, a suburb of New York City on Long Island, um, you know, named after, I don't know what first name Levitt. Yeah, um, like Daniel Levitt or whoever. The so, John Levitt. Every every unknown person is John. Um, I thought it was Jim. You know, Jim's Jim's a guy. John's an unknown historical figure, you know? Okay. But anyway, John Levitt, who is probably not his first name, you know, came and put forth these plans to build a suburb of New York called Levittown. It was, you know, it wasn't the first suburb. It wasn't the most innovative suburb. It was just an ambitious suburb, um, a planned community with all these amenities and, you know, seemingly quaint alcoves for people to go live in and these picture-perfect houses. And it could only be built for the... Like, they could only get the funding for it if 
they explicitly made it so that it would be segregated and that only white people could live there. Now, there are ways that that is enforced um, because as mentioned earlier, you can't just zone for white people or black people. But at the time, it was generally seen that it was okay for an individual seller of houses to discriminate as they wanted. So the, you know, the whatever Levittown Corporation or whatever it would be, it was definitely, it was seen within their rights at the time to only sell to white people. And, you know, they would take in applications from black people. They would just not acknowledge them or deny them or what have you for whatever reason. Um, sometimes not even just because they were black, they would find some other reason to uh, deny it. And then even from that, another thing that the FHA would make as a condition for these homes in order you know, in order to make sure that the racial segregation held on longer just from than just the the initial selling of the house was that they would make uh you know create they would have the people selling the houses make the buyers also signed what they would call racial covenants where it was essentially a contract that the buyers, you know, buyers of the house would sign saying that they would not ever sell their house to someone who is black. Yeah. yeah. Co- covenants are a actually pretty they're a pretty standard way to amend the deed to a house. Basically to say, you know, by buying this house I agree to certain conditions that the previous owner wants me to fulfill. Like, I I will never plant an apple tree in the backyard, or I will only paint the the shutters of the second floor green. Like, a lot of really benign stuff, but then, yes, at the time, the courts upheld that an enforceable racial covenant could be enacted, whereas part of the deed, it said, I will never sell to a black person. So that in perpetuity, the racial segregation of the neighborhood would be preserved. And the FHA made sure that this would happen because it was an explicit precondition of their mortgage insurance that the deeds to the newly constructed homes must contain those racial covenants. A a big theme of the book is the difference between segregation that happens because people making their own individual choices are racist. This is called de facto segregation. And then there's also these moments of de jure segregation, where the government steps in and imposes segregation in a way that it does not naturally occur. And if the FHA says, we will not insure your mortgages, which again, ensures that the project won't come to fruition, we won't let you build your house unless every house in the development includes this racial covenant in its deed. That is an act of de jure, de jure, I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, uh, de jury, de jury. Is, that. Uh, that's how it was pronounced, yeah. yeah. De jury segregation. And so 
I'm sure that, you know, the, the developers weren't losing too much sleep over including the racial covenants, but even if there was someone who didn't want to build a segregated housing project, there was no way for them to do it. Yeah. Um, there were in, in great detail in some of the books or in the, some of the chapters of people who wanted to develop integrated communities and were just basically halted by the FHA and then also by local governments. I have one of my favorite stories from the whole book. Favorite is a rather macabre way to talk about this, but one of the most interesting stories is a local ability to try to put asunder an integrated housing project. But I want to say one more note on racial covenants before we get out of here. Um, Basically, the idea was the legal thinking at the time was that, you know, 14th Amendment, what have you, the government could not explicitly enforce segregation, racist ideology, what have you. But if people wanted to be racist, the government had no obligation to stop them. And so racial covenants were allowed because they were allegedly personal decisions to exhibit racism. However, how this was eventually ruled unconstitutional and defeated in the courts is because when someone violated their racial covenant and sold their house in an all-white neighborhood to a black family or a black individual, neighbors could then sue to have the black person evicted on grounds that it violated the racial covenant. But because the eviction would have to be carried out by an arm of the state, you know, namely the local police force, the courts finally came to see that by allowing racial racial covenants to be legally enforceable with the arm of a governmental law enforcement agency that was now the government upholding segregation which was outlawed by the 14th amendment and there was some more battles and bullshit that happened over the next few decades lots but... of battles and bullshit <laughs> like yes. just through the whole history of this lot like lots of cities actively trying to win court battles in order to ensure that they can use whatever tools to do racial segregation that they had available or had used. Yeah, so I want to tell one specific story. Uh, One of the big examples of the book is the city of Milpitas, California, because the city of Milpitas was able to get a Ford manufacturing plant after the war. And it was an expansion of a plant that was in Richmond, California. And a lot of the workers who were going to get transferred over to the Milpitas plant were African-American. And so naturally, all the new workers who were coming down to Milpitas needed a place to live. And there was a developer who wanted to build a housing development for the new Ford workers. And this developer really wanted to make sure that it was an integrated project, that the black workers and the white white workers could all live there as long as they were financially able. Because they're just like as a weird quirk, that branch of the United Auto Workers Association was integrated and believed in racial goals, which was not always the case in all unions and all branches of the United Auto Workers Union, but that specific branch did. Yes. So 
the the guy is developing this area of land to build homes for Ford workers in Milpitas. And before the local city government understands that the development will be integrated, they quote him a price on what it's going to cost to run sewer lines and operate the sewer lines to his property. And then once they found out that he was planning it on being an integrated development, the city revised their sewer estimate at 100 times the cost that they had initially quoted him. Yeah. So the city government jacked up the price to use municipal services 100-fold to make the project financially unviable and scrap the entire thing. And even then, they tried to keep going on. Uh, If I remember correctly, or there were other projects where this was similar. Even then, tried to eat the cost of that. But then, you know... There, there are a thousand different ways localities can fuck with a project if they want it to not go forward, um, where they can change pricing of things. Access to roads, access to public services. Yeah, the road access is a big yeah. one, yeah. Like, there are many, many different ways that a locale can fuck with a project without ever saying just no black people. Um you know, changing the price of the cost of sewage, changing the price of road access, changing, you know, making sure that um, people who live there, uh, their school is going to be on the other side of town. So and not provide any bus service. Um, Yeah, the school placement, I want to hit on that because that's huge. So this was a way that town and local governments could continue to ensure segregation would be to have schools that were close to the boundary of two different racial neighborhoods close the one that's closer to the boundary and move the predominantly black school farther into the black community so that parents would either be forced with having a huge transportation hurdle to get their kid to school or move farther into the segregated area of the town. Yeah. Yeah. Like... Just, just, oh, I'm getting mad now just thinking about it. Like, just all these tools were used to make it more expensive for black people to live in a integrated area. Just full stop. Just, you know, the cost to black people for housing for a great part of the 20th century and even now i mean that's the whole point of this book is that even now the cost is way greater so like the i i guess this is us going into the cost of all this stuff situation um so because the government would only insure projects or developments that were segregated and most of the projects that would get built were for white people and that um, they would not give these loans for, um, you know, pre-existing houses in areas that they deemed bad. So this is, this is where the, the term redlining is. So basically the FHA would um, have these maps 
where it, I mean, essentially green was okay to loan. Um, yellow was kind of mixed and red was supposed to be risky, but red just meant black people lived there predominantly. They were surgical in their precision of drawing these lines. The FHA had appraisers who would go out across the country and study these neighborhoods, go into the towns and neighborhoods and document which places had African-Americans living there. And then those would be the red areas on their map. And as Joe said, that line of red between the black community and white or racially integrated communities, although racially integrated communities were not looked upon favorably by the FHA either. But that line of the the red line surrounding African-American communities were typically were areas where the FHA would not guarantee mortgages, which as Joe is, is getting to here. That means that development predominantly occurs in white areas, and so there is a huge disparity in the housing supply that white people have access to and the housing supply that black people have access to. Right. So the the population of the country is going. Um, people are having babies, and it's noticeable. Um, <laughs> it, a, a baby boom, if you must. Um <laughs> Um, so there, there is an increased demand for housing and a lot of housing is getting built for white people all over the country. Um, very notably, I mean, uh, there's all these, uh, new suburbs, um, being built, um, that are basically just only for white people. I mean, there are a few black projects that get built, but not anywhere close to it. And then what happens in the areas that are already black, um, people aren't able to have access to those real nice um, FHA loans where, you know, you pay it off over the course of 30 years and you get your house back. A lot of people in those areas are still black people in those segregated areas where only black people live are end up being restricted to one, there's only so many places where they can live because nobody's building new houses for black people. But then also um, they're stuck having those old financial instruments if they want to end up buying the house. Like it just ended up costing costing so much more to be black. Like there was one story in there that I just found like just made me flip my shit when there was an... Uh, a man who owned an apartment complex in Chicago that was kind of on the border between the white areas and the black areas. And he had been renting to white people um, for a while, but he ended up changing his mind and switching his apartment complex to house black people because there was so little housing stock for black people that he could charge rent four times higher than what he could charge for white people. Four times yeah. higher. He, you know, it, it, I think it was like $15 a month for white people and $60 a month for black people. You know, and that was at the time when costs were so much lower. And I wish I had handy the you know, exact dollar amounts of what it would be today. (laughs) But just imagine anybody, 
your rent being four times more than what other people had to pay for the same shitty apartment that was just basically a commercial area beforehand. And so what, so, you know, having these apartments that cost maybe four times more or having these houses where you had these, you know, to buy it, you had these really expensive loans that you didn't even end up getting to own your house afterwards with meant that the cost of housing was so much more. And that meant that many black people who lived in these areas, you know, the adults would have to work, you know, two jobs, which meant that they were never home and their kids, you know, had, um, you know, not as much supervision. Um, it meant that more people, you know, people would double bunk up, double, triple, quadruple bunk up in these houses because they needed the additional income to be able to afford to live there. So, you know, quickly became this perception that, oh, black people just get overcrowded and, you know, they're not responsible for their kids. They're just always off when, in fact, they're just off working multiple jobs to even be able to afford it because also at the time they're earning less than white people for the same jobs. So, and the third, the third element to that too, is that because they're working extra jobs and paying higher rents, they have less money to pay for maintenance and less time to do it themselves. And so the maintenance of black housing units suffers and again, contributes to this perception. Oh, black people are lazy. They can't even take care of their property. When in reality, they just don't have the resources to do so. They don't have the money or the time. Um, yeah, they're, they're in that double bind. <laughs> yeah, there's just nothing that can be done about it. So black people are restricted to living in these areas that are, I mean, just because of the nature of things, not again, not because of the content of their character, but because the content of their pocketbooks and their timesheets. I mean, these these neighborhoods are just shittier. They're they're overcrowded. They're run down. Um, people end up start calling this blight. Or, you know, um, uh, you know, just tough, uh, you know, negative terms. And um, and they're just restricted to this. And people use that as justification that, you know, these people are, you know, shitty. They're just of bad moral character. I mean, they can't, they, you know, I, I, I own my house and I, I keep it up and, you know, have a nice mowed lawn and all this, you know, whatever bullshit. And... It's just used as justification for additional racism Um, Mm -hmm. because they, you know, because outwardly, you know, for whatever reason, we like to think that, you know, black people are living or at the time they were just living their lives, all things being equal, but all things were not being equal, not even in the slightest. They were playing such a a game that was so much more rigged against them than anyone would have thought, or at least people today would think, you know, we would think, you know, what was, how did, how did black people encounter racism at that time? And, you know, I'm sure we've heard like the story of like Cory Booker's family, you know, setting up a sting of a racist realtor or something. And, you know, it was really just the realtors who were racist and they were racist. 
very explicitly racist and they would get shunned from their the realtors organization of the United States because if they sold to black people. But that's that's not just the one step. <laughs> yeah, it's it's every there's step. all of these deliberate government policies and decisions that set systemic forces in places to create and justify these systems that created a differential reality for black people. And there is just such a desire to paper over it that we can't do. We cannot afford to let people think that it was, oh, just something that happened. People were racist and now we're better. I mean, you can think of a pretty direct line to a lot of the ailments that have uh, afflicted, you know, I mean, this, I mean, this will be more geared towards, you know, urban African-Americans. Um, I mean, there, I mean, talking with stuff about this, I mean, there's a lot of pitfalls and stereotypes and, you know, things that you often don't do in polite conversation or, or it's tough to talk about, but like, you know, in Chicago, I mean, let's say, you know, you have those families paying four times more. So they're having to bunk up there's a lot of kids um, because there's a baby boom happening. I don't know if anybody's heard about that. And <laughs> um, there's a baby boom happening. The parents are having to work multiple jobs. So something that ended up happening in these areas is that even as there was a greater need for child care because of parents being having to work so many jobs in order to be able to just afford housing, you know, a basic human right that there were so many kids in these areas because everybody had to bunk up that the local school systems couldn't handle all the kids that were there. They had class sizes that were massive, and even sometimes they would do alternating parts of the day schedule where some of the kids would go in the mornings and some of the kids would go in the afternoons. Instead, mm -hmm. kids getting half days of school instead of full days of school which is just you know it, it, it it's it's everything it just fuels the you and, know and remember go ahead go ahead it just fuels the decline of a community without them having a real grasp you know the kids don't get the education they can't move on to go and get better jobs the better jobs aren't near where they live, but they can't afford to go and drive somewhere to go and get it. So they're there. They're despaired. They don't know what to do. Maybe the maybe the fucking crack epidemic starts because there's a whole lot of black people who live in these cities who feel like they have no economic opportunities. And you know what? When people are in a moment of helplessness and despair, they just, you know, they turn to drugs. And I know that's like a stereotype, but there's a reason why these things happened. Not because they were a bad moral character, but there was a lot of shitty stuff going on. And I just want to reinforce that we could tell a million anecdotes, but the anecdotes only are a representation of how widespread all of this segregation and discrimination was. Obviously, that example that Joe gives about the Chicago landlord who could jack up the price on black tenants is, is horrific, and it just happened everywhere. There is one story in the book about a, a landlord who could evict a white family from a home, subdivide the home into six parts, 
and charge each black family that moved in more than the white family had to pay to rent the entire house. It's just ridiculous. Or, or, you know, because of the bad loan products or, you know, there is like these ideas of rent to own black families would regularly just get evicted from their houses because their loan terms were so tough and they had no other options. Yeah. Yeah. And if you missed one payment, they would evict you. But these people didn't really have any other options (laughs) um, other than to go after what I'm pretty sure most of them knew were these predatory loans. But I mean, they didn't, it's not like that they could just go move out into the suburbs or somewhere else or they, they just had this very, you know, they, I don't know, they, it, you know, it was like the, you know, the smoking zone, you know, <laughs> like they were confined to this little square and, you know, there's a lot of traffic in there. And something else that we haven't even hit on yet is that, you know, this is not like people at the bottom who are uniquely affected by this middle class African-Americans who, you know, maybe some of them were even educated and certainly would work very hard in skilled professions and could earn a middle-class wage, were still subject to these same issues. Yeah. I mean, there there were very few middle-class black areas that existed on the same plane as middle-class white areas. Um, Middle-class black people had to live in the same... um, areas with negative spirals that the poor black people lived in um they're just you know and you know once you're in that area once you're in an area of kind of decline it's 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 hard to rise above it even if you're of a higher stature than your peers around you yeah um and if middle-class African-Americans would try to move into middle-class white neighborhoods, there was absolute hell to pay that was completely condoned and accelerated by the government and local law enforcement. There's a story that I think of, of a white man who sold his house in a middle-class neighborhood in Louisville to a middle-class African-American and his family, and there was an absolute riot. The people from the neighborhood came and vandalized the home, destroyed a lot of property, and the police just looked on. They were there, but they didn't try to stop the rioters. Clearly, they were able to identify the rioters, but no arrests were made. In fact, the only person who ever faced any legal repercussions for the riot that occurred was the white man who sold his house. He was convicted of sedition for allegedly trying to foment a race riot by selling his home to a well-qualified African-American buyer. Yep. And he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Thankfully, that got overturned on appeal. But the the government, through acting through its branch of law enforcement, said... It's okay if you rough up an African-American family that moves into this middle-class white neighborhood. The only one who we're going to try to come after are the people involved in the sale of the fucking home. Yeah. So all of this, I mean, we have kind of abstracted that the, you know, 
you know, trying to point out the racism that the state perpetrated in its decision. So, I mean, in some way you could kind of see that as a conspiracy theory. Oh, it wasn't, you know, the average Joe who was racist. It was, you know, these people pulling the levers of government, keeping everyone else from being racist. But lest we forget, white people um, in the mid 20th century were very racist at everywhere. Like, you know, we like to have this popular image that in the North, people weren't racist because they, you know, in the Civil War, they believed that, um, you know, uh, slavery was bad and should be abolished. But, you know, that that didn't mean that they thought black people were whole people, uh, merit of everything that white people have. No, they just... Yeah, the most... The most liberal opinion at the time was that black people are still subhuman. They just shouldn't be slaves. Right. That was the big progressive position. Right. Outside of everyone but like Tommy Lee Jones, I guess. Yeah. In Lincoln. Yeah. So this held on into the housing. And so there was a lot of government pressure to create segregated housing. And whenever there was a breach of that, a mob would generally show up because, you know, I mean, you know, this this keeps going back to my, you know, thing that the racism of the past creates the justification of racism in the present or create creates differences of outcome, which justifies racism in the present. I mean, the the black communities had you know, all the things that we talked about where, you know, they had these, um, you know, where the communities were run down, they were overpacked, they were filled with crime and, you know, because of despair and all this stuff. And, you know, and then, you know, some brave black family decides, you know, finally is able to grab enough money and, and get themselves alone and buy a house in Levittown. And, a mob shows up because they're racist, but they're also like they're also using the justification that this black person moving here is going to bring the crime, the blight, the depth, you know, the the decay, the overcrowding that they have in the city, which just isn't the case and was created by racism, which created a difference of outcomes to the white communities, which was then used to justify them not wanting the black people to live there because they thought it was a very real threat to their way of living. Exactly. That's a really good way to say it. There was a racist condition forced a bad outcome onto African-Americans, but the conditions were then ignored by the white masses and so they, they drew a simpler line between these social problems and the black people themselves. And they constructed this lie that it was the blackness that was responsible for these problems and not the racism that black people faced, which then is used to justify future racist actions instead of actually going back to the root of the problem. But all of this, you know... If you had a reasonable idea or even the faintest hint that if you were going to move into a neighborhood 
and there was even a 1% chance that a violent mob would show up at your house to try and break down, you know, to try and get you to leave violently, sometimes even using bombs or throwing rocks at your house, would you even want to try and move into that neighborhood? No. No. So... We created segregated communities and kept black people out. Then we finally loosened up the rules to where it could be that black people could move into the neighborhoods. And then the state, you know, local governments and sometimes state patrol would stand by and watch as a mob would try and get these people to leave and even in some cases killing them in the act for the simple audacity of wanting to move into the neighborhood. Now, maybe it wasn't, you know, the choice of African-Americans, you know, you know, I, I would think that they wouldn't want to choose to try and move into those neighborhoods if there aren't already black people there. You know, it's a little spooky. Like we created segregation and then created a society that self-enforced it. And where it's tremendously scary for the affected party to even try and do something about it. Because a mom might come after them. It's, it's all been fucked up. Like just the history of housing in the United States for African-Americans has been one that costs so much more, creates hardship, and just generally has made the conditions for thriving or even just surviving much more difficult than it has been for the white counterparts. Mm Mm-hmm. And so what do we what do we do, yeah. Joe? What do we do? Well, it's tough because a lot of this stuff is very retroactive, very ingrained in our uh, society, and a good number of our communities are basically stuck in no growth or stagnant, and it's like, what do we? do about this um i don't remember all the fixes that were proposed in the book but just i remember some of them i mean yeah you're you're always (laughs) way bigger on the solutions part than i am um so one of his most interesting proposals is so essentially one of the big negative implications of government policy stopping black home ownership is that African-Americans throughout the generations have not been able to benefit from the appreciation of value of home prices. And so this has been a huge detriment to intergenerational wealth growth for African-Americans. In fact, the African-American wealth gap in many areas is larger than the African-American wage gap, which is kind of bonkers. But... Oh, yeah, like the wage gap is like... Black people maybe earn like somewhere, but 
like 80 to 90% of white people. That's like the wage gap. But the wealth gap is that the average black family has like five to 10% of what the average white family has. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just an order of magnitude different. And it, it's very directly related to the, you know, the housing issue. Yeah. So Rothstein says, what if we look at housing developments that through the FHA had been legally prescribed to be segregated. And when people want to move out of those places, like Levittown, the government buys their home at the fair market rate and resells them to an African-American family at the fair market rate from 50 years ago. Yeah. So that they can essentially catch up on that 50 years of value accumulation that they should have had access to if it weren't for the racist policy of the FHA. I think that's a very interesting solution. Clearly Rothstein, even in his book, understands that that is not politically workable. That will never happen. Um, But there's subtler things that we can do too. Go ahead, Joe. I mean, mean, this, the solution... This is like a lot of the books that we read where there are some books that describe an ailment in society and the book is really geared towards what the author's solution for it is. Like that's one one category of books. But then there's this other category of books where the the author is more so trying to describe the problem in whatever way that they are and then are almost kind of obligated to have a solutions <laughs> section, um, even if they don't really wholly believe in the solutions. But, you know, it's just like, since they're the most, uh, you know, since they're the one who brought up the topic and, you know, uh, theoretically the most knowledgeable on the subject you would at least want to hear the solutions proposed by the person most knowledgeable on the subject yeah i think in a lot of these cases and i would argue especially here in the color of law rothstein's probably first solution his his most important solution is that people start believing the things that he says in the book you know that we take this to heart and understand that this is real and that this is persistent his best solution is that People understand this as an issue and maybe someone else who is better, I don't know, just is able to come up with a better solution (laughs) of how to. He does offer a couple of more technocratic fixes, though. Obviously, zoning reform is a huge thing, like get rid of the vestiges of racialized zoning. And then also you can almost on a state level impose a tax penalty on municipalities that don't have their communities at a representative sample of the overall state demographic. So for example, if, if let's say, for example, in New York, um, 15% of the state is African-American and then in Levittstown, they have less than 5% of that population is African-American. The, um, the government can say, okay, we're going to we're going to jack up property taxes or something. We'll impose a new tax on this jurisdiction if they don't take active steps to guarantee racial integration in an area that had previously been segregated. So, yeah, I mean, so there are there's ideas. It's it's a book more about the injustice. 
Yeah. Um, it is. But Joe's it, right. It, I am always interested in what do we do? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just, uh, it's so like this book just makes me mad and you know, it just, it really makes me think that the economic hardship or, you know, conditions put on African-American people in this country is the real, is the deal. Like the historic economic plunder of African-Americans in this country, that's, that's the, you know, it, it seems like almost everything would be downstream of that. Um, you know, the school debates, you know, people will have conversations about like, are standardized tests racist? And I will, and, and the argument normally goes from them is that, um, you know, there definitely have been periods in the past where certain questions on standardized tests were um, less accessible to, uh, you know, black people because of differences of culture and access to things. Like, you know, a question about skiing on a standardized test, one I just don't think has any merit, but, you know, just especially um, is not applicable to um, African-American people because of differences of accessibility to the sport and, and, you know, likeness to it. But it's like, is standardized testing racist because, you know, there may be some questions or, um, because black kids aren't able to, or have a harder time getting the education that they need to, in order to do well on them. Now I would say it's not so much racist that the standardized test is racist. The racism comes through in that um, African-American people are subjugated to living in these communities that cost less because they make less because um, their families have less intergenerational wealth so that they're more likely to fall off the ladder and their families have to work more jobs or have no jobs available to them so that they're either unable to provide the basic needs to their kids or they have a tougher time keeping spending time with their kids to you know nurture a greater respect for school or achievement or what have you that's all downstream of the racism of the past that made it really hard for african-american families to generate wealth yeah like well put it, it ends up being that it could be seen like if we're just looking at things that it may look like a standardized test may be racist but it's not the test that's racist it's all the conditions that led to a difference of output that is um that is the the real racism and so we get caught up in society in a lot of you know uh, culture war battles over what we do for black people in order to help them to help mitigate the differences of racism like i don't think affirmative you know at this point if there wasn't the huge disparities in you know, achievement and what, you know, the, the resources for black people in society, you know, if it truly was that 
the the different communities had equal opportunity, which is a much higher bar than people ever realize. People often actually what they describe is a minimal level of opportunity for all. Um, but, you know, if it truly was that, you know, generally black people and white people had um, different, you know, are the same level of opportunity, then there wouldn't be a whole lot of need for affirmative action. And, but we, we are where we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, a lot of the stuff that really gets people is downstream of the real issues of housing segregation that created differences in wealth generation, which creates racist outcome, you know, differences of outcomes today. Absolutely. So zoning reform always. (laughs) Every topic boils down to it. Every topic, you know, discretionary income like we talked about on another episode it's all about making sure that the cost of living the you know whatever the essentials of living are cost as little as possible so that families can generate wealth so that in the future that they are able to be more productive members of society and less likely to use government programs not that it's not that it's bad to use government programs but it, it's generally seeing that if we have a society where less people are needing to rely on social programs, that that would be better for society in general, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it would just be more efficient. We'd have more resources. I mean, people and people like to be able to take care of themselves. So, I mean, maybe that's, maybe I'm the the Uber conservative who is spooky. Joe's Um, the real alt-right. Yeah. I'm the alt-right. It's very alternate to whatever they believe. Exactly. The former alt-right is now just the main street right. So you're the alt-right now of this presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, I'm the real alt-right. It's like, all right, I'll, I'll take you up on trying to get people off of welfare. So we have to increase welfare now. (laughs) No, no, we meant, ah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this book is a bombshell. Um, it is very important. It puts words to so many things that are just kind of vague, vaguely known. Um, yeah, just all of the examples that he uses to demonstrate the broad principles that he expresses. I think the biggest word I would use to describe this book is persuasive. Yeah. It is comprehensive and persuasive and, he is Rothstein has written it in such a way that it's really impossible to deny the reality of what he's talking about, which is a very high bar for someone to write a book that at least to my mind is completely ironclad in its argument, but it's really wonderful. Like anger inducing, but wonderful. Oh yeah. Like Evan and I both had the situation where just, just anger, just pure anger at how all this happened. Like, if before reading this book, if you had asked me how housing discrimination had worked in the United States, I probably would have said something like racist sellers and redlining, but I wouldn't really have known what that meant or how it worked. I yeah, just exactly. knew the term. I would have, 
<laughs> I would have known about the realtor thing and then nothing else. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, there are just so many poor sh- parts of how racism worked in housing that wasn't just racist realtors. Like, they got the brunt of it because they, they were the visible part. But, you know, I mean, you know, that's the real... You know, I just thought of another stupid, you know, stuff that, you know, happened in the world of, uh, you know, people and race is that like, what was it? There was like the Texas Realtors Association where they were going to stop calling them master bathrooms. Yeah. In respect. (laughs) And it's like, I get that you're an organization that has a past of doing racist things and you want to, in some way, in the current moment, show that you are not racist or trying to or trying to not be racist. But that ain't it, chief. <laughs> I mean, even most most takes that I saw from black people and black activists were you're missing the point here. This is not this doesn't fix anything. We're not upset about master bedrooms like, come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I've often wondered if the the. Um, title of master fell out of fl- favor because of you know the issues of racism in the south <laughs> or you mean for uh, you like know, uh, you know mr you know, master like, miss yeah yeah miss mrs yeah master that, used to be the the title for an unmarried young man equivalent to miss yes yeah and then and then we had our own you know whole culture war thing about mr mrs or or miss mrs you know, in yeah. the seventies and it's like, did we, did that all happen because we lost, you know, master from our speech? And did that happen because people saw it as like a vague racism, even though it wasn't who knows, Yeah, but it's just something I've, it's just a line of thought I've wondered in my head, um, before, um, Listeners, write us in. Do you think that uh, when C-3PO, call, C-3PO calls Luke Skywalker Master Luke, is C-3PO pining for days on the plantation? I, 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 that's a spicy take. Um, <laughs> I, I, want, I want a full 40-minute, no, hour and 20-minute YouTube video um, going into it. <laughs> so... Um, I guess if we were to, uh, turn this into a recommendation of whether to read this book or not, I think we would both say yes. Yeah. Read it. Um, it's good stuff. Ask Um, me to borrow it. I'll lend it to you. Ask me to, uh, play the audio book of it for you over the phone. I guess I, I could, (laughs) um, Alex is going to take you up on that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You just have to schedule it. Um, so yeah, that's the color of law. And I, I, I hope our discussion is enlightening to you, um, the listener as I, I hope it's anywhere near as much as light as enlightening as reading the book was for us. Um, yeah, to put it simply, racial segregation is the direct result of government policy. It's not an accident. And then a lot of the negative things that black people have had to face in that con- in this country ever since have been downstream of that. That's, if, if you can take nothing else away, that's the 
one yeah. sentence summary, two yeah. sentence summary. Who's to say? Depends Who's on if I say? use a semicolon. Who is to yeah. say? Whom, whomst, whomst amongst? Um, um, well, uh, with that, um, we appreciate you for listening. We hope that this was enlightening. Um, it, I, it, it's a drum I, I like to beat. It's, it's, fuck, I need to read more. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, thanks for listening. Thanks to Anthony Hish for making the music. But as always, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.